Section 33 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Fifth Decade, Chapter 1 From the End of the Spanish Campaign to King Edward's Last Treaty with France, Part 2. But Henry of Trastamar could not forget the part which the Prince of Wales had taken against him. During the siege of Toledo, he had entered into a treaty against England with the King of France, and was now prepared to give him active assistance in the war which was declared against England within a month of Henry's second accession. The English Parliament was sitting at the time of the arrival of the bearer of the French defiance, a kitchen boy, Varley de Cuisine, selected to aggravate the insult of the challenge. As soon as it was ascertained that the letter was genuine, King, Lords, and Commons determined on immediate preparations for a vigorous resistance. The Parliament granted a liberal subsidy for war expenses, and recommended that Edward should again assume the title of King of France, just as before the peace which Charles, son of John, late King of France, had broken. From that time till the reign of George III, the French fleur-de-lis was quartered with the English leopards on our great seal. The first attack on France was made through Brittany. Its duke was now by express stipulation a vassal of the King of France, but his heart always inclined toward the English alliance, and though he had done homage to Charles in 1366, in 1372 he had again entered into a treaty, offensive and defensive, with Edward, and he now welcomed the invaders of France on their disembarkation in his dominions. Sir John Chandos returned to his duty when danger threatened. The Coptal de Bouche and Sir Hugh Calverley came at the call of the prince to the rendezvous at Angoulême, where he lay, almost helpless from disease and devoured with vexation. Meantime, an expedition for the invasion of England was being fitted out in the northern ports of France, but the Duke of Lancaster, having occupied Calais with a strong force, the invasion was abandoned. The French fleet had only accomplished the burning of Portsmouth when it was recalled, and King Charles concentrated his soldiers at home, while the Duke was wasting and pillaging far and wide between Calais and the capital. A French force under the King's brother, Philip, Duke of Burgundy, largely outnumbering the English, advanced against them, but was withheld from engaging by orders from the King of France. After confronting the invaders for some weeks, the Duke broke up his army, and having lighted his watchfires to deceive the enemy, decamped under cover of night, just as his grandfather King Philip had done twenty years before on almost the same ground, abandoning the citizens of Calais to their fate. The ensuing winter was made sadly memorable by the death in a chance melee of the gallant old John of Chandos. Encountering a small body of the enemy at the foot of a bridge over the Vienne, Sir John had dismounted, for the ground was slippery with frost, thinking to fight them better on foot. His leg got entangled in the long robe of white samite which he wore under his armor, and he fell upon his knee. He had lost an eye hunting some five years before. And a nameless knight, coming upon his blind side, 
dealt him a mortal blow in the face under his unclosed visor. His loss was a fatal injury to the English cause in the long desultory warfare that now began and continued for years, with varying success on both sides. It is unnecessary to give the wearisome details. Suffice it to say that every year saw the English dominion more and more disintegrated, and fresh accessions made from it to the territory of France. The Duke of Lancaster, on whom the conduct of the war devolved, was gifted with no military capacity, and there is reason to suspect that he was even now not influenced by a jealousy of his illustrious brother, and a desire to take advantage of the enfeebled condition of that prince for his own aggrandizement. King Edward, with his concurrence and possibly at his suggestion, for he was witness to the order, commanded the black prince to remit the hearth tax and restore the money already paid. He also offered the royal pardon to those who had revolted against the English authority and sent the duke with a fresh commission into Aquitaine, nominally to reinforce his brother, but with ample powers of independent action. And now King Charles, believing that the time had come for striking a fatal blow, and having asked for and obtained a liberal subsidy from the States General, in 1370 organized a double and simultaneous invasion of the English territory to be led by his two brothers, the Duke of Anjou and the Duke of Berry. The first army under the real leadership of Du Guesclin, and reinforced by a large body of the companies, overran the Agenois, taking city after city, and advancing within a few miles of Bordeaux itself. The other entered the Limousin, and laid siege to its capital Limoges, which was surrendered to them by the treachery of its governor, the bishop. Sir Robert Knowles, meanwhile, landed at Calais with five thousand men, and ravaged the north of France, sparing only the cities which were willing to pay him blackmail. He could find no enemy to match him in the field, and advanced so far as even to threaten the city of Paris, from the ramparts of which the citizens could see the farms and villages blazing. Knowles had risen into notice as a captain of brigands, but was now in the pay of the English king, and is claimed as one of the ancient worthies of the county of Chester. In despite of their power, says Fuller, he drove the French people before him like sheep, destroying towns, castles, and cities in such manner and number that many years after the sharp points and gable ends of overthrown houses, cloven asunder with instruments of war, were commonly called Knolls, his mitres. Du Guesclin was summoned from the south to defend the capital, but Knolls, whose followers became unruly and mutinous after a slight reverse, withdrew into Brittany before his arrival. The Prince of Wales, for some unexplained reason, was beside himself with fury at the surrender of Limoges, and swore by the soul of his father that he would recover the city. He was carried in a litter, for he could no longer ride, up to the walls, and finding the place too well fortified and garrisoned for a successful assault, sat down before it to take it by siege, and his engineers mined the walls night and day. At the end of a month the mine was completed and the wall stood supported only upon wooden props with which the miners had shorted up as they worked. 
fire was now set to the props, the workmen withdrew, and at the hour of prime as fixed by the prince, down crashed a great pane of the wall, leveling up the ditch, and leaving a breach through which the English poured in before the garrison had recovered from the stupor of the shock. Inflamed with revengeful passion and triumph, the prince rode in high mounted on his litter with his guards and partisans on foot, and deliberately ordered his soldiers to dash out with their pole-axes the brains of all they met, and show no mercy to man, woman, or child. A guard of archers was posted at the breach, and another at the gate, to slay the fugitives. Surely at such a time, says Barnes, war is dressed up in his most dreadful habiliments, and that heart must be very strongly barred against all access of pity, which would not relent at the sight when men, women, and children, with hands and eyes lifted, flung themselves on their knees before the enraged prince to entreat for mercy. This was the last military exploit of the victor of Poitiers, and one too many for his fair fame. But even then, though mercy was extinct, the class feeling of chivalry survived. Three French knights, seeing that all was over, resolved at least to sell their lives as dearly as they could, planted their backs to a wall and with eighty stout men-at-arms beside them, and their banners displayed, awaited the onslaught of the English. The men-at-arms were soon beaten down and slain by overwhelming numbers, but those three knights still stood at bay, and the Duke of Lancaster and the Earls of Cambridge and of Pembroke each singled out and attacked one of them, while the slayers paused from the work of destruction to gaze on the triple duel. The Black Prince was passing in his litter, and his vindictive rage gave way as he saw how gallantly his brothers and the Frenchmen fought, and so for the sake of these three valiant gentlemen he commanded that the slaughter should cease, and took them and the survivors to mercy. The traitorous bishop, the author of the whole calamity, was also spared at the urgent entreaty of Pope Urban V. But three thousand of the innocent plebeian townsfolk were massacred, and the city reduced to ashes. In 1371, the prince, on returning from the sack of Limoges, became rapidly so much worse that his physicians peremptorily ordered his immediate departure for England. So urgent were they that he left the body of his eldest son, Edward, who died at this juncture, to be buried by the Duke of Lancaster, now appointed his successor in the government of Aquitaine. But the duchy was fast slipping out of English hands, and that it was so is an indication of something more than want of military capacity in the English leaders, or the superiority of French tactics. Charles was wise enough to see and take advantage of the change of feeling that had come over the inhabitants themselves. The newly annexed districts hardly disguised the reluctance with which they submitted to the English rule, and even the provinces which had never been separated from the English dominion began to feel that they belonged by natural right to France, and to turn their eyes toward Paris as the proper center of their national life. The time was long past for Aquitaine to glory as it once did, in its independence of the king who reigned in Paris, and the existence of a foreign principality within the geographical limits of France was doomed from the moment that it became an anachronism, that is to say, a fact out of keeping with the times.
But though the Black Prince was, as a soldier, as good as dead, and the king himself enfeebled in mind and body, the English people had no intention of submitting to a dismemberment of the monarchy, and unanimously determined on a new invasion of France. Fatal errors had meantime been committed. The King of Navarre and Robert II of Scotland had been suffered to ally themselves with the French in 1370. This Robert, the nephew of David II, who died in 1371, was the first crowned king of the family of the hereditary stewards of Scotland, a title which, under the later form of Stuart, gave a name to our royal English dynasty, the lineal descendants of Robert II. About the same time, an untoward concurrence of circumstances confirmed the hostility of the new king of Castile and made him a bitter as well as a dangerous enemy to England. King Pedro's daughters had been allowed to rejoin their father, and upon his death they fled for refuge to Bayonne in English territory. In 1372, John of Gaunt, having lost his wife, who brought him the title of Lancaster, was advised by the Gascon nobles to marry Constance, the eldest daughter. My lord, they said, you are marriageable, and we know of a great marriage whereby you and your heirs will be kings of Castile, and it is a great charity to comfort and advise young girls, especially the daughters of a king. Take the eldest in marriage, we advise you. The duke listened to their suggestion, and he and his brother, the Earl of Cambridge, married the two orphan sisters. The duke, assuming the title of King of Castile, the reigning sovereign had no choice but to repel the pretension by all means in his power, and an opportunity of aggression was not long wanting to his hands. King Edward and his council, having determined to invade France by way of Rochelle, the command of the expedition was given to the Earl of Pembroke, and the king was so ill-advised as to send a small force of soldiers, but plenty of money, to pay the troops who, he was assured, would flock to his standard in Poitou. This money, as will be seen, was chiefly raised on the property of the church, and to this fact the superstitious attributed the disastrous result of the expedition. At the French king's entreaty, Henry of Trastamar sent a Spanish fleet to Rochelle to oppose the disembarkation of the invading forces. The English were in possession of the castle, and nominally of the town of Rochelle. But in no part of the French territory ceded under the Treaty of Bretigny was the ill-will of the inhabitants toward their new masters more strongly felt. When Pembroke arrived with his little fleet off Rochelle, he found forty great castellated Spanish nefs and other vessels drawn up to receive him. The English at once attacked them and fought so valiantly that when night separated the combatants, the battle was undecided. The governor of the place labored hard to persuade the townsmen to embark and help the English, but they pleaded that though they would gladly fight on land, they were no sailors. Next morning at high tide, the Spaniards having the wind in their favor, each of their ships deliberately singled out and grappled an English vessel, and pouring down stones, lead, and bars of iron from the tops upon the decks of the enemy, sent it and its crew to the bottom before the English could climb the steep sides of the Spanish Neef. Pembroke himself was taken prisoner, 
the treasure ship sunk, the whole of the English fleet captured or destroyed, and a blow thus inflicted on England's naval power, from which it took many a long day to recover. End of section 33